morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 1 this morning. If you're new with us this morning or if it's been a while since you've been with us, we started a series on the book of James last week. It's our habit here at Free Money Free to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. And so that means this morning we are in James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Let me pray and then we'll get to it here. Uh, Father, we want to pause. Just ask for your help. I acknowledge that I am weak. I'm a jar of clay. And I pray that you would just work in me this morning to be able to faithfully preach your word. I acknowledge also that for all of us in this room, that's true, that we are all weak. We're all jars of clay. And so we need your help for me to preach, for those to listen. We just pray that you would be at work in us this morning. God, please minister to us powerfully through your word. We pray that as we turn our attention to the book of James, that we would be encouraged, that we'd be challenged, that we'd be convicted where we need to be convicted. God, we just pray, in short, that your word would do its work, that you would do a powerful and mighty work in us and through us and for your glory, that we might know you more and that we have more confidence in drawing near to the throne of grace. God, thank you for your kindness to us and giving us your word. Now help us to receive it with joy and gladness this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Over the course of the last several years, there have been some really difficult stretches in our family. With both Tanya's health and Dawson's health, the valleys have been real. But of all the difficult stretches that we've faced, I think January of, 22, January of 2022 is probably the most difficult. In months leading up to January of 2022, Dawson's health took a turn for the worse. And in January, the wheels completely fell off the wagon to the point that Dawson had to be flown by emergency medical transport from Children's Hospital in Omaha to Colorado Children's Hospital in Denver. Now, we knew that Dawson was not doing well prior to that flight. Obviously, that's why he was at the hospital. But I don't think we realized how bad he was until we got to Denver. Because at that point, we realized he was really sick, and his body was seemingly starting to shut down. It was a scary time for our family. And looking back, one of the things I remember most is the completely helpless feeling we had in the hospital. There was a realization in Denver that there was nothing we could do to fix our son no matter how much we advocated for him or tried to help him or get him to the right doctor, the reality was that the circumstances we were facing were beyond our control and beyond our ability to fix. We felt helpless because we were helpless. We didn't know what to do. We had no idea what direction to go next. We were drowning in the deep end, and it seemed like there was no life preserver in sight. The only thing we could do is cry out to God and ask for help. Lord, please give us wisdom. Help us to know what to do. Lord, please intervene. Lord, please help us to trust you during this time. Please help our son. In those dark days in Denver, prayer was not an optional luxury that we deployed as a backup plan. It was our only plan because there was nowhere else to go. It was plan A and there was no plan B. In retrospect, I would actually say that was the great blessing of that season. In that trial, we were clearly and unambiguously reminded that in terms of navigating the difficulties of life, prayer is the plan. It's plan A. And there's no plan B, at least not one that compares to plan A. To make our way through the challenges of life, our first instinct as Christians must be, it must be to run to God first and ask for help. And that reality is confirmed not just by our experience in Denver, but more importantly, it's confirmed also by the testimony of Scripture. In James chapter 1, James pleads with us to run to God in the midst of our trials and difficulties. And he encourages us to do so with a mindset that God will hear our prayers and answer, and that any other option outside of running to him is a counterfeit option. In other words, I think what James wants us to see this morning in this passage, James 1 verses 5 day, is that prayer is plan A and there's no plan B. God alone is our refuge and strength in times of trouble. So that said, let's get to it here. James 1, 5 day, if you will, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word if you're physically able. 
Standing is a simple way to remind ourselves this is the Word of God. As such, it's due our attention. So this morning is James 1, 5 to 8. The words are on the screen here. You can follow along that way, or you can follow along in your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. But the Word of God says this, beginning in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So one of the interesting things about the book of James is that the book has almost a Proverbs-like feel to it. At times it feels like James is simply floating from one piece of wisdom to the next without giving much thought as to how the two pieces of wisdom connect. And at first glance, it kind of seems that that's what's happening in James, verses, James 1, verses 5 to 8. In James 1, verses 2 to 4, as you, may remember, as you may remember from last week, James challenged us to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and we are to let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But now in James 1, verse 5, James tells us that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God who gives generously. And in that transition, it seems that perhaps James has completely shifted topics. In verses 2 to 4, he's talking about having a certain perspective towards trials. And now in verse 5, it seems he's shifting his attention toward prayer. And in that, it almost seems as if James indeed is moving on from one piece of wisdom to the next in a Proverbs-like fashion. But there's a clue in the text here that the two sections are meant to be linked together. Verse 4 ends with James talking about steadfastness having its full effect, that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word lacking is important. Because in verse 5, James uses that same word lack again, telling us that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God. And in using that word or a variation thereof in consecutive verses, I think James wants us to see there is a connection between verses 2 to 4 and verses 5 to 8. Namely, if we're going to have God's perspective towards trials, joy in the midst of trials, if we're going to have, let steadfastness have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, then we're going to have to learn to be people who pray and ask God for wisdom to help us navigate the difficulties of this world. If we're going to grow in Christian maturity, we're going to have to ask God to give us wisdom to be able to do so. So I think that's the connecting link between verses 2 to 4 and verses 5 to 8. Now, having established that connection, our attention this morning is indeed going to be on verses 5 to 8. In verse 5, James gives us an invitation to come to God in prayer and ask for wisdom. And then the rest of verses 5 to 8, James gives us an encouragement as to why we should do this. But he also places a caveat on the way in which we should do this. So in light of all that, here's the plan for this morning. I want us to think first about the invitation that James gives us to pray in the beginning part of verse 5. Then I want us to think about the encouragement that James gives us as to why we should pray in the latter half of verse 5. And finally, I think we need to consider the caveat about the way in which we should pray in verses 6 to 8. So first invitation, then encouragement, then caveat. That's the plan. So let's start our journey here in James 1, 5 to 8 with the invitation, which is the first part of the section here. And the invitation is simply this. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Verse 5 starts this way, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. The invitation of verse 5 there at the beginning of verse 5 at least is fairly straightforward. If you lack wisdom, ask God for it. But straightforward as that may be, I think there are a few things we need to clarify here regarding the invitation. First of all, I think it's important that we understand what we mean when we talk about wisdom. 
Wisdom is not the same as head knowledge or intelligence. Wisdom relates to the way that we live. A wise person has the ability to put knowledge into action. Or to say it in biblical terms, a wise person is one who lives in light of what God's word teaches. And they live in light of what God desires for their life. And that way you can know a lot of facts about the Bible. You can know a lot of facts about God. But that's not the same as being wise. A wise person will put God's word into action. A wise person tries to discern what does God want me to do and then does it. So to ask God for wisdom is not the same as asking God for knowledge. To ask God for wisdom is to ask for the ability to live in light of what God's word teaches. It's to ask God to help you live in a way that is pleasing to him. Here in the context of James 1, one of the reasons why we ask God for wisdom is so that we can be steadfast in times of trial. We ask God for wisdom so that we can have his perspective on trials and so that we can live in light of that perspective. We ask God for wisdom so that we can navigate the difficulties of this world and so that we can grow in Christian maturity as we do so. So to be a person who lives out James 1.5 is to be the type of person who encounters a trial and your first instinct is to pray, God, help me know what to do here. God, give me strength to persevere through this trial. God, help me to have joy in the midst of this difficulty. God, do a work in and through me as I walk through this circumstance. God, help me to bring glory to your name and help me to live in a way that pleases you through this difficulty. To pray for wisdom is primarily then to ask God for the ability to live in light of what we know to be true. It's to ask God to help us live out what we believe. And again, in that way, asking God for wisdom is much different than asking him for knowledge. As an example, if you get in a sticky situation at work with one of your coworkers, asking God for wisdom in that situation is not the same as asking for knowledge. Knowledge might help you to navigate relational difficulties. And in that way, even non-Christians have knowledge. But wisdom helps you to navigate those difficulties in a way that honors God, and in a way that's consistent with what God's Word teaches. So I think that's the first thing we need to clarify as it relates to the invitation of verse 5. When we talk about wisdom, we're not talking about intelligence or head knowledge. We're talking about the ability to put into practice what God's Word teaches. But secondly, I think we need to clarify that all of us are going to need wisdom as we attempt to navigate the brokenness of this world. Verse 5 opens by saying, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. In that statement, if any of you lacks wisdom is an assumption. You will lack wisdom. The language of verse 5 is what's known as a first-class conditional statement in which the first half of the if-then statement is assumed to be true. In other words, when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he assumes you will lack wisdom. And therefore, you need to ask God for that wisdom. James is not offering an invitation then in verse 5 only to those who are a few eggs short of an omelet. He's not saying, okay, for those of you who are a little bit slow and can't stay with me here, you can ask God for wisdom. That's not what's happening. No, instead what he's saying is, if you lack wisdom, which you all will, then you should ask God for wisdom. And listen, if you've lived on this planet for any amount of time, then you know that James is right in assuming that we will lack wisdom. When I was in my 20s, which is a long, long time ago at this point, I was pretty confident that I knew how life worked. Parenting, ministry, marriage, relationships, all of it seemed really straightforward in my 20s. I was convinced if I just did things the right way, everything would work out fine. I'm still convinced that's true, but as I've gotten older, I've realized that knowing the right thing to do is sometimes just really, really difficult. 
No matter how many parenting books you read, there is no book that covers every possible situation you face as a parent. No matter how many marriage seminars you attend or how many marriage podcasts you listen to, putting biblical principles into action in your marriage is much, much more difficult in reality than it is in theory. And as far as ministry goes, I can't tell you how many times in the last couple of years alone I've thought to myself, they did not cover this in seminary class. Listen, to live for any extended period of time is to come to the conclusion you will lack wisdom. You will lack wisdom. And you will lack wisdom. And if you have yet to come to that conclusion, rest assured you're probably the person who most needs wisdom so that you can see you do need wisdom. Life is challenging. It's filled with trials. And figuring out how to apply biblical principles, biblical principles in certain situations is difficult. How do you know what to do when you're trying to help someone who's in the midst of a marital crisis? What do you do when your kid is sick or a tornado hits your farm or your teenager's making poor choices or your friends have let you down at school? How do you respond when your finances seem to be falling apart? What do you do when the company you work for seems to be moving in a direction that's inconsistent with biblical teaching? How should you respond if your teacher at school asks you to give a report on something that you don't think lines up with biblical truth? In all those situations, there are definitely biblical principles that apply, but figuring out how to apply them requires wisdom. But the good news is that we have an invitation to ask God for this wisdom. And the even better news is that we have reason to believe he will respond when we ask. Which brings us to the second section here, the encouragement. And encouragement is simply this, that God is generous and he gives freely and without reproach to those who ask him. This is Again, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. In Matthew 7, the passage that Jim read earlier, when Jesus encourages us to pray and to come boldly to God with an expectation that he will hear our prayers and respond, Jesus grounds that expectation in the character of God. As Jesus says it in Matthew 7, God is a father who loves to give good gifts to his children who ask of him. James takes a very similar approach here in James chapter 1. Like Jesus, he grounds our motivation and incentive and encouragement to pray in the character of God. Specifically here, he grounds our motivation to pray in the idea that God gives generously and he does without reproach, without finding fault. In fact, more than just giving generously, the literal translation here is that he is a giving God. In other words, what we're saying is is that generosity is not just something he does on occasion. It's the very essence of who he is. As we saw back in the book of Genesis, God's inclination towards us as humans, his first instinct is to bless. He is a giving God. And his character should absolutely change the way that we approach him. I mentioned earlier that in January of 2022, Dawson had to be flown by emergency medical transport to Colorado Children's Hospital. The problem with that, aside from the obvious medical issues, is that due to COVID rules, neither Tanya or I could fly on the plane with him. And we knew that if we land, or excuse me, we knew that if he landed in Denver without us being there, given his health situation, it would be absolutely terrifying for him. It would be awful for us too, as we would have no way to be there to advocate for him or care for him as he was in this medical crisis. So we had to make a quick decision. We could just drive out to Denver as fast as we possibly could, or we could try to find a way to fly there. To complicate matters, it was probably 1.30 or 2 in the morning when they made the decision to fly Dawson to Colorado. So at that point, our options were kind of limited. We could drive, but that would take a while and be dangerous given that neither one of us had slept. 
Or we could try to call a friend in the middle of the night who just happened to have a plane and see if we could catch a ride. Now, here's the thing, and I'm sure you know this. The list of friends that you feel comfortable calling at 2 a.m. in the morning is pretty small. It's pretty small. To call someone at that time, you have to have a trust that that person will think the best of you. And you also have to trust that that person's disposition is one of kindness and gentleness. So when I tell you that neither Tanya or I hesitated for a second to call our friend Adam Marshall and ask if he could fly us to Denver in the middle of the night, that should tell you everything you need to know about his character. I knew that he would want to help. I knew he wouldn't hesitate to spring into action, and he did not. Now, I will say that he was a little groggy when I called him at 2 a.m., and I'm not sure he understood everything I said initially. But even in his grogginess, I'm happy to report, he was a cheerful groggy. And he proceeded then to gladly fly my wife to Denver in the middle of the night so that she could be there as close to possible as when Dawson landed. And I followed shortly thereafter in the car. My point is this, though. My willingness to call Adam at 2 in the morning and to make a really, really big request of him, hey, uh, Adam, can you fly my wife to Colorado, like, right now? That's a bold request. But the fact that I was willing to make that request was entirely a reflection of my perception of his character. I knew he cared about our family. I knew he was generous with his time and possessions. I knew his love for Jesus compelled him to love others. So I made a bold and audacious request. In the same way, I'll say this. If you believe that God is generous, and you believe that God is gracious to overlook our faults, and that he has power to answer prayer and will answer prayer, then you will pray. But if you believe that God is stingy, or that he's always looking to find fault in us, or that he's not powerful enough to do anything, or that he doesn't care, then you won't pray. And that way I would say this, our prayer life, or lack thereof, says more about our view of God than it does about who God actually is. Because hear this, and hear it clearly from James chapter 1, God is generous. He gives without finding fault or reproach. He's powerful enough to answer prayer, and he does answer prayer. So if we don't pray, it's not because God lacks the power or the care, it's because we've underestimated his character. To use our analogy, we aren't willing to call him at two in the morning because we think that he'll be upset or that he won't care or that he won't answer the phone. But as James reminds us here, if that's your view of God, your view of God is incorrect. He does care. He is generous. He gives without finding fault. Now, obviously, in saying that, I'm not suggesting here that God is a cosmic genie who grants whatever wish we want of him. Oh, I'd like a Lamborghini. God, please grant that. That's not what we're saying. There's no health, and wealth gospel, or no health and wealth prosperity gospel being hinted at here in James 1. The rest of the testimony of Scripture is clear. God is a good father who only gives good gifts to his children. And he gives those good gifts in light of his eternal plan and perspective. He gives us what we need in order to live a life that's pleasing to him, in order to bring glory to him, in order to prepare us for eternity, in order to mature our character. So we're not saying this morning that God is a cosmic genie. But what we are saying, and more importantly what James is saying, is that God's disposition is one of generosity and graciousness and fatherly care. He longs to bless his people. He gives sincerely and without hesitation. And to use the language of James, he gives without reproach. He's not looking for an excuse or a loophole to get out of answering our prayer, as if he's some sort of appliance salesman trying to get out of covering the extended warranty. No, on the contrary, he knows that we're flawed, and yet he responds anyway. His disposition is one of sincere and uncritical generosity. We know this to be true because James tells us, 
But we all also know this to be true primarily because Jesus died on the cross for our sins while we were still his enemies. If ever there's evidence that God is generous and gives without reproach, it's the cross. Jesus willingly went to the cross, laid down his life on our behalf, and rose from the dead. And he did all of this while we were still his enemies. He gives generously and without reproach. And because he is generous and gives without reproach, we can come to him boldly and with an expectation that when we pray, he will respond. Specifically in the context of James 1, he will answer our prayers when we ask for wisdom. When we don't know what to do or how to live in a certain situation, but we ask God for wisdom, James would say he will respond. He's generous and gives to those who ask. But there is a caveat. And the caveat here is this, that we must ask in faith and not doubt if we expect our prayers to be answered. Verses 6 to 8. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, admittedly, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read verses 6 to 8, it seems a little bit discouraging. It kind of seems like God has found the loophole to not answer our prayer, right? After all, if perfect faith without any mixture of doubt is the standard for answered prayer, who amongst us has any hope that any of our prayers will actually be answered? In our human flesh, at least some feelings of doubt and some feelings of discouragement on some occasions seem inevitable. But lest you think here that James is completely trying to rain on our prayer parade, saying, well, God won't really answer your prayers because you doubt. I think we should clarify that James seems to have a very specific kind of doubt in mind. And that specific kind of doubt is evidence in the language of verse 8. In verse 6, James gives an illustration that the person who doubts is like a wave of the sea being driven and tossed by the wind. And then after stating that that one tossed like the wave should not expect to receive anything from the Lord in verse 7, he goes on in verse 8 to describe the one who's doubting as a double-minded person, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And that language of double-mindedness is the key to understanding what kind of doubt James is talking about. Now, James is the only one to use this term double-minded in all the New Testament, and he does it twice, once here in chapter 1, verse 8, and then a second time in chapter 4, verse 8. And in both cases, he seems to be describing one who is waffling back and forth between allegiance to God and allegiance to the world. And in that way, the double-minded person is not wholeheartedly committed to following God, but instead they have their foot halfway in the door. The double-minded person is equally content to pursue worldly options as they are to pursue godly options. And thus prayer for the double-minded person is just an option amongst many other options. And it seems that this mentality is what James is actually railing against in verses 6 to 8. As commentator Douglas Moo puts it, James is not claiming that prayer will never be answered where any degree of doubt exists. For some degree of doubt, on at least some occasions, is probably inevitable in our present state of weakness. Rather, he wants us to understand that God responds to us only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent, a spiritual integrity. In other words, I think what Moo is saying is this. James is warning us that if we doubt God's character, or if we doubt his ability to answer prayer, or if we think that prayer is just an option amongst many other options, in that moment we are being double-minded. We're trying to live in two camps at the same time, the kingdom of God, prayer, but also saying, well, yeah, but there's other options that are more effective. And if that's the case, James is saying, we should have no expectation God will hear our prayers. 
Hear this. God does not expect us to be perfect in order to answer our prayers. In fact, as verse 5 reminds us, he gives without reproach and without a critical spirit. But God does expect, I think we can say in light of what James teaches, that we will see God as the refuge and strength. Not a refuge and strength among, amongst other refuges and strengths. He is the refuge and strength. He is our only hope in times of trouble. Listen, if prayer is just something we do to cover our religious basis, rather than our greatest hope in times of trouble, then we are double-minded, and we should have no expectation that God will hear us. And in saying that, here's my concern. I think for a lot of people, including maybe even some in this room, prayer is just something we do to cover our bases rather than plan A. One of the questions that we've been asked a lot over the last few years is this, how can we help your family? It's a question I really appreciate, as I know, mean, as I know it means people care and they want to help our family. And my first answer to that question is almost always, you can pray for us because we need it. But I can tell that when I give that answer, it doesn't always satisfy everyone. In fact, sometimes people will start to push back on my request for prayer. They say, well, yeah, I know we can pray, but how can we really help? Now, I understand what people are saying when they say that. And I get that there are other ways to help beside prayer. When the tornadoes hit, for example, last week, those who were affected by the storm didn't just need our prayers, although I would say that's primarily what they needed. But they also needed physical help as well. So I get that. But having said that, I think the way we talk about prayer in times of crisis often reveals that we don't really think prayer is the most effective thing we can do. Now, certainly when you think about the culture at large, it's obvious that this is their perspective on prayer. Christians are often mocked on social media when they respond to crisis by offering up prayer as if prayer is nothing but an empty platitude that accomplishes nothing. But listen, this is not surprising when the world views prayer in this way. If you don't believe that God is sovereign and reigning and ruling over every event in history, why would you value prayer? So I don't think we should be surprised when the world thinks that prayer is not effective. But what is surprising and what is discouraging is when the church doesn't value prayer. When those who claim to follow Christ dismiss prayers in empty platitude, that is far more concerning because it's evidence of double-mindedness. If we say God is sovereign, if we say God is the one who can change things, but deep down we kind of think it's up to us, that is double-mindedness. Prayer is not plan B when we've exhausted all other options. Well, let's just try all this other stuff, and if it doesn't work, then let's pray. No, prayer is our first instinct. It is plan A. Church, if we want to grow in our ability to reach lost people, if we want to be better at discipling our church members, if we want our kids to grow up knowing Christ, if we want wisdom to know how to move forward in a hostile culture, we must first and foremost be a church that prays. Now, I'm not saying there, there's not a place for talking about strategy or who we are in staff or those types of things. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we first and foremost must be a church that prays. If not, we may say with our lips, God is our hope, but in reality, we are living a double-minded life. And in saying that, I'm just going to be honest here. This passage was pretty convicting for me this week. It convicted me because all too often my first response is not to pray. When faced with a challenging situation in parenting or a difficult counseling situation here at the church or some medical situation that's overwhelming, my first instinct is oftentimes to think of a new idea or to seek wise counsel, or to reach out to a new doctor, or in some cases, just to feel frustrated. But surely, that instinct betrays a double-minded mindset. 
I say that God is my refuge and strength, but in times of trouble, I often run to my own resources, my own wisdom, my own ideas, or the wisdom of others. Now, having said that, in verse 8, it does seem that James is maybe primarily warning against those who are permanently double-minded, meaning they're non-Christians, nominal Christians who say they're following Jesus, but in reality are not following him at all. And thus, they don't pray with a sincerity because they're not actually following Jesus. It's possible that's what James is talking about in verse 8. But surely, even if that is who he's talking to, it's still appropriate for us as Christians to be warned by verses 6 to 8. We don't want to be double-minded people. I don't want to be a person who says, God is my hope, but then lives as if actually I can do it on my own. I want to be a person who lives as if my greatest resource in times of trouble really is to pray, to ask God, would you please intervene here? Or maybe to say another way, I want to be more like Jesus. I've been reading through the Gospels recently, and I've been struck by how many times Jesus would withdraw to pray. Now, obviously, if anyone had the ability to deal with issues on their own wisdom, it would have been Jesus. But it doesn't seem that's the approach he took. Instead, when he's in a time of difficulty, or for that matter, when he's in a time of plenty, he would withdraw to pray, to ask the Father for wisdom. And listen, if that's Jesus' approach, it would seem that should be our approach too, that we should be a people who pray. In light of James 1, we should especially be a people who pray for wisdom. God, help us to know how we can live in a way that's honoring to you. God, help us to know the best path forward. God, help us to live in light of what your word teaches. God, help us to have your perspective on trials. God, help us to be wise. And the good news is that if we make this prayer, and we do so with an understanding that prayer is not just an option, but the option, God hears our prayer, and he gives generously to those who ask. So church, my encouragement for us this morning is, Let's be a church that recognizes prayer is indeed plan A. There's no plan B. Let's be a church that seeks him. Let's be a church that cries out to him. Let's be a church that asks God for wisdom so that we might live for his glory and for our joy. Let's be a church that prays. In fact, let's pray right now. God, we thank you for this reminder that we can come to you when we lack wisdom and we can ask and you'll give generously. And so we're just going to come before you, and we're just going to acknowledge that we lack wisdom. Whether it be parenting situations, or whether it be relational difficulties, or whether it be just the difficulty of living in a broken world, every single day we're reminded that we don't always know what to do. But we're asking that you would help us collectively as a church to live for your glory. We're asking that as a church, collectively, you would help us to live in light of what your word teaches. We're asking that we would live in such a way that we could be the Rome of Christ to those around us. As we navigate the difficulties of this world, we pray that you would give us your perspective on trials. We pray that you would help us to have joy in the midst of our difficulties. And we pray that we would live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Please, God, we lack wisdom. Would you give it to us? Would you help us to live in light of what your word teaches? Would you help us to be people who live with a single-minded devotion that we realize you are our great hope, our refuge and strength in times of trouble. Help us to believe this to be true and live accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.